then we circle back around and we look at how many animals and insects and ecosystems are destroyed or killed or damaged from conventional row crop agriculture versus regenerative practices. And people have done these analyses and, you know, raising animals on grass, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, that is the most sustainable and also the least harm that it, it causes the least amount of death relative to the industrial row crop food system. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is your first time here. Welcome to the family. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If this is your first episode, you picked a good one to start. <laughs> we have two-time New York Times bestselling author, Rob Wolf, joining us today. He wrote the book, Paleo Solution, Wired to Eat, and just finished releasing his newest book called The Sacred Cow. He's also, the top -rated He's also a top-rated podcast host of the podcast called Health Rebellion Radio. And this is a guy that I've been following for years, probably since about 2011, 2012. He's always been somebody that I look to for trusted information. You know, he's, he's always willing to pivot when he learns new things and new data. He's all about the science and the data, right? He's not dogmatic about diets, about nutrition. He's all about looking at both sides, you know, the different sides of the argument and figuring out which is best. And we unpack that today. We talk about the meat industry, the good, the bad, what's better for the body and the environment. We talk about veganism, what's better for the body, environment, all that stuff, which is what we get into as well with his new book, The Sacred Cow. You guys, this is jam-packed full of information. So I would highly suggest if you take notes in your phone, be ready. If you take notes with a pen like I do old school, do it. But this one is, is just full of information. This is probably one of the most important conversations that we've had on this show, and it will really educate you guys, right? We get into Rob's story, but then we get right into, into the world of health, the science, the nutrition, what is best for you and all that. So highly suggest you listen to this right till the end, and I know you will. If you're watching this on YouTube, awesome. I would love to hear in the comments what you think of this, if you guys got value out of it, if you're enjoying it what your biggest takeaway was, all that stuff. So you guys sit back, relax. The one, the only Rob Wolf coming right up. And here we go. Rob Wolf, welcome to the show, man. Huge honor <laughs> to be here. Thank you. Dude, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time, been following your work for years. And you're one of these guys that I've always really trusted with what you say, because there's so many people out there that have this advice and information and what I've always appreciated is your ability to pivot when things change, new information comes, and you've always been able to give people the right information at the right time without having the ego of, this is the way it always is, it's always like this, and you have to do it like that. So I really appreciate it, man. Like, Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It, um, it, uh, it, it's helpful. Um, I don't like being wrong. But the yeah. fix, fastest way to fix that is to change my mind when presented with appropriate information. So, yeah. No, it's, it's just, it's great to be able to 
I, I just like the, I don't like the dogmatic approach and you talk about that as well. It, it, and things are different for everybody. And that's what I appreciate about you is that um, a lot of people tend to feel bad and they get, it makes, it's like a personal thing if they, they go off their diet or yep. it's, and it becomes like this thing and it's just food, you know? Yep. <laughs> it's one meal. It's one meal, hopefully among <laughs> many, many more that we will have, you know, and just uh, trying to steer that more towards, you know, where our goals want to take us versus away from it. Yeah. 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 So also, I want to just kind of circle back right to the beginning here because you, you've had your challenges with your health over the years it's pronounced ulcerative colitis, right? Ulcerative colitis. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. what it is about that word, man. But uh, somebody very close to me had that, and okay. it was it was almost like the end of the world to her. At one point, it was like the doctors they really made her feel like it was, you know, like you're stuck with this and you can't ever get out of it. Within conventional medicine, that's yeah. largely the case. It's yeah. like uh, surgery, immunosuppressant drugs, and a short life is kind yeah. of all that they've got to offer you. And uh, it's barely getting on the radar of some, some doctors now that uh, significant diet and lifestyle change can, can dramatically alter the, the course of things like um, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's. Like there's all these kind of interrelated GI problems that they, they assume are completely different, but generally they've got some very similar underpinnings to them. So like if you can kind of fix one, you can usually fix mm -hmm. other ones. Yeah, yeah, but the... The prognosis is bleak if you're just operating in that standard Western medical model, you know, which is amazing if we get hit by a bus or you get, you know, in a car accident, like emergency medicine performs miracles. But for chronic disease, it, it's not super impressive what it can do because it, it's, uh, it's our food, it's lifestyle, it's the light we get on our skin. It's all these different factors that play into that. Walk us through your journey through that. When did you discover that? And what are some of the things that you had to do in order to kind of like get through that and, and a little bit about your path of, you know, how you got to where you are today? Yeah, you know, and, and uh, uh, man, it's, it, it, to me, even now, it's, it, it's kind of interesting, but I was a state powerlifting champion in, in high school. I'm about 170 pounds now. I was about 180, 185 um, almost back squatting and deadlifting 600 pounds. Like I could flat foot dunk a tennis ball standing under a, and I'm, I'm five, nine, you know, so I'm not a, not a tall dude by any means, but pretty strong, pretty good power, you know, for a, for a whippersnapper and everything uh, have always been interested in health and, and performance. Both my parents smoked and drank and were unhealthy. And I just knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I was, I was very interested in, in different ways of uh, approaching things. And the whole idea of like a vegetarian diet got on my radar, you know, immediately post high school, as I think it oftentimes does when people go off to college. And I started tinkering with that. I was still doing martial arts. I was still trying to do powerlifting. But I'd shifted to a mainly whole food-based vegetarian diet and eventually a vegan diet. And it just didn't make sense to me that I would need to do like protein powders or, or supplements. It was kind of like, hey, man, if, you're, if this diet is superior, I should just be able to eat whole foods. And so I ate beans and rice. I ate hummus. I ate tofu. I went to the Giorgio Shawa Macrobiotic Institute and, you know, learned how to, in theory, do this stuff really well. But 
that in combination with living in Seattle, which has no sun, and I, I think I'm one of these people that uh, the closer to the equator I live, the better uh, off I am. Like I'm in the hill country of Texas now, and like my health just took a, another major step up because I, I get sun on my skin every day. You can get a tan here in December. So it's, it's just a way different deal. But I, I think it was all of these things kind of together. Um, I also, in my youth, uh, had really bad acne. And so I was on uh, tetracycline for, I don't know, 10 years, like 13 to 23 or something like that. So I was just on serial antibiotics for That's ages. hard on the gut, that stuff too. I it's, took it for a bit. It bit-off. is. Yeah. Like I had Brutal. this acid reflux constantly, yeah. you know, and then you're trying to figure out how to deal with that. So it was a lot of different things, you know, like had I moved to Arizona versus Seattle, would a vegan diet have worked better? Had I not, had I moved to Arizona versus Seattle and had I never been on tetracycline for 10 years, could it have worked better? Maybe. But I, I think at the end of the day, um, the, the genetic testing I've done, um, the gut testing, it all suggests I, I do better on the lower carb side of things. And then just empirically, like that's kind of the the way that I've, I've noticed that I feel better. And that was my, my last ditch effort to deal with this ulcerative colitis. Like I said, I'm about 170 pounds right now at the low ebb of the ulcerative colitis. I was 130 pounds, it, just malabsorption issues. Like my hair was falling out. Um, nails were split, uh, horrible sleep depression. I mean, I, I was really a mess and I did some poking around on this idea of a paleolithic diet. And this is back in 1998. So like I literally, this idea popped into my head. I, I went into the house, turned on the dial up, waited for the dial up to do its thing. And then there's a brand new search engine named Google that into it, I put paleolithic diet. And I found a little bit of information. Um, Art Devaney and Lauren Cordain had some material. Lauren had just published this paper, uh, Cereal Grains, Humanity's Double-Edged Sword. And he talked about how civilization as we know it probably wouldn't have developed without agriculture, but a lot of these agricultural products have had some downsides for health, at least for some people. And a big chunk of what he talked about was all these weird GI related problems. I'm like, man, this sounds like me. So I, I switched things around. The first kind of ancestral health book that I read was actually an Atkins book was mm-hmm. the, the, the gateway drug for me. And it was interesting, even in that book, he mentioned that eating low carb ended up resolving like a uh, GERD gastroesophageal reflux disease and a bunch of other GI problems. So even in that book that is um, very weight loss oriented, there was a bunch of other stuff They're like, oh, by the way, your GI problems will get better and your blood pressure will go down. So I gave it a shot and that was 22 years ago. And I've definitely tinkered and fiddled along the way. Like there was a period of time in the kind of paleo low carb space that uh, say like safe starches were a big deal. And I tried like crazy to make that work and it just made me sick. Like it didn't work for me. Um, this new carnivore thing, I I've tinkered with that. It's funny. The, um, the only time in my life in the last 22 years I've had food cravings is when I was eating carnivore and I wanted to eat everything. Whereas if I've just been kind of lowish carb keto, I'm fine. I have no food cravings at all. It, it, it's kind of crazy. So um, I really wow. dig the carnivore concept because I think for some people, it's kind of like the thing that they need to use at least for a while to, to heal themselves. And the one thing I learned from it is that I really paid attention to the amount and types of vegetable matter I consume mm. and how my digestion is. 
And things like raw broccoli are not my friend. A raw green salad is not my friend. Like I'm, I'm pooping like a goose after mm. I eat that stuff and I have stomach cramps and everything. And folks will say, well, is that normal? Is that right? And it's like, I don't know, but if I avoid those things, then I feel better, you know? And, and so that's, that's been kind of the evolution of this thing of going all the way from like a vegan diet all the way to, um, tinkering with some carnivore and finding that, that, um, for myself, it's not the ultimate way that I think I should be eating, but it did inform some of my decisions. Like I, um, eat more fruit, fewer vegetables now, and I really keep an eye on the things that I, I do well with. Very interesting because yeah, I mean, I've, I think I started really getting into this stuff probably around 2012 when I started, you know, I moved to Australia and I really got into like the paleo side of things. Mm -hmm. There was paleo cafes, you know, I was drinking the, yep. the fat coffee, the bulletproof coffee, all that stuff. And I really started to get into that. But then, you know, yeah, things started to shift a bit. Then we got into like more of the low carb and then, you know, like the carnivore, the keto and all that. I've tried carnivore. It's, it's such a weird thing because I feel so good when I eat steak and eggs, but I have this like weird guilt feeling towards it. Like, is this like, because we've been taught that too much of this isn't, isn't good for us. But right. then, like you said, when I eat broccoli, like don't be around me for a while because right. it, it's not right. a good idea, but, right. but we're told to eat this stuff. So it's right. And I would, I would make these huge ass salads before work. You know, I was working in the bars, I'd sweet potatoes, broccoli, everything. And, you know, keto, I, I did lose weight on it, but that I was still getting that gut that feeling. And it was always like, well, I'm told to eat this. I'm told to eat the green smoothies, the kale shakes, but yet I'm not feeling good. Right. You know? And yeah, I feel and like that's happening with a lot of people. It, it, and I guarantee you there's some folks out there that thrive on that stuff. They're, yeah. they're like, it's just the way that they're going to work. It's going to be the way that uh, all cylinders file. It, and maybe again, like how many generations now, like antibiotics came on the scene in the, they had sulfa drugs in the 1930s. I don't think it was until the late 1940s that penicillin based antibiotics hit, hit the scene. But how many generations now do we have of people that have taken antibiotics, you know, like a grandparent, yeah. parent, you know, kid, um, we know pretty clearly that that has an impact on our gut microbiome. We don't, in my opinion, know exactly what to do about it. Like, I think that we, we know the gut microbiome is important and yeah. that's all we know. Like yeah. I, there are a lot of people out there that claim to know oh, you, if you do this or you do that. I think situationally people can tinker with some things like doing a FODMAP diet or a specific carbohydrate diet and try to try to dial some things in. But we're really in this very early stage with all this stuff and, uh, to your point, I think that there's a ton of people that, um, for whatever reason, again, maybe in the idyllic human sense, we should be able to eat all this stuff, mm. but a lot of us just can't now. And, and so eating a little bit more, it, one thing that's interesting to me is, uh, most people do okay with at least a little bit of fruit, you know, like yeah. melons and berries and, and stuff like that. They usually do okay with that. That speaks to our frugivorous past, like the ancestors pre- Homo habilis are, are thought to have been frugivorous, basically, you know, uh, really dependent on fruit. Mm -hmm. And then we shifted into what became basically like big game hunting, you know, like eating lots of protein, lots of animal products. 
And you could maybe make a, a case that our genetics are fairly well set up to eat fruit yeah. and meat and animal products. And, and that is interesting, even within the carnivore scene, the things that they say, well, if you're going to reintroduce anything, here's kind of the list of stuff to do. And it's usually from that really easily digested fruit, maybe a little bit of tubers, more like carrots and turnips and stuff like that. But things like broccoli and kale, it's kind of like that's where people end up in the, the worst problems, ironically. Yeah. 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 It's, I remember the first time I, I had uh, Paul Saladino on right after Ben Greenfield when he, like last year, last spring, that was the first time I really heard about it. Mm -hmm. talking about the nose to tail and I was blown away, man. Like I was like, how can you deny this? Like this is fucking insane. Right. I was just blown. I could not believe it. I I was just like, how is this even a thing? And then, you know, started to dive into it. And then I followed you. I was like, I mean, what's Rob Wolf say about this? And you know, that's what I like to see. I like to hear this and then see what's going on where everybody's talking Mm -hmm. about. And then it's like, wow, this is, this is crazy. I got to try this out. I can't do the organ meats, but man, like, there's something about that eating, eating that way, that low carb, like really giving that body the joints a rest. Like it really, the inflammation is, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's what I worry about though, is like, it's like when I want to work out hard and you've talked about this too, you get stuck in the, do I have enough carbs or can I push through this? Do I want to mm-hmm. like get stuck in the middle of my hard workout with, you know, run out of gas Right. That's kind of the dance that I've been playing with. It's like, how much is enough when you're training hard, yet, you know, how much can you push yourself on the other side of the spectrum? Right, right. And you know, it's, a, it's interesting, even the uh, Keto Gains guys, like uh, Tyler and Luis from Keto Gains, very good friends of mine, um, they've recommended this uh, Keto Gains coffee before training, and it's, um, it's coffee, oh, yeah. MCT oil, some whey protein, and about 10 to, 10 to 20 grams of dextrose, like depending on how big you are and what you're doing and all that type of stuff. And, you know, I, I've got to give those guys a hat tip. Like for ages, people have talked about like post-workout recovery and all this stuff. And Luis was really early on the scene observing that like, I think mm. pre-workout nutrition is actually where it's at. And everything from like fat burning to muscle gain, um, Having a little bit of fuel in the system is not a bad idea. And, and this is where some of those keto, low-carb ideas, I don't say they go out the window, but if you're going to put in 10, 15, 20 grams of carbs and then start working out, that's a very different metabolic state mm. versus like eating a plate of pasta and sitting down and doing what you and I are doing. Like we're just yeah. sitting on our duffs, like our metabolic rate is, is where we would be if we were in an intensive care unit, you know? Yeah. And so like, we don't really need a bunch of extra glucose running around then. But um, in that pre-workout period, it, it kind of makes some sense. And I, I think that there are some situations where, Training fasted is good for like mental toughness. It's maybe good for forcing some of that fat adaptation. But the the thing that folks forget is so long as you're exercising, you're enhancing fat utilization, period. You know, like you you just do that. Um, even people that are consuming significant amounts of carbs, like the body is getting more efficient at, at utilizing fat. So I think that that's something like, like the lesson I've taken from looking at Tyler and Luis is like really orient pre-workout situations to optimize the workout. Go in there and just fucking crush stuff, you know, figure out how you can get the best juice out of that. Um, I see a lot of people doing training, train fasted, um, 
super low carb. And again, there's maybe applications for that, but I, I think people take that to an extreme and they forget the huge benefit of just really trying to make progress, add a little bit to your back squat or, or deadlift, add a little bit more to your vertical leap, um, try to improve your 400 meter time or something like that. Like everything that goes into improving things like that so benefits our health and our, our physique and everything. Is it, does it make a difference whether you have, let's say like fructose, like berries rather than the dextrose, or are you going to get the same, like if you just say you're going to have like a slice of watermelon and something really. Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. Um, Tyler and Luis really oriented towards glucose okay. um, specifically. I've noticed personally that I seem to benefit a little bit from the glucose fructose combo and the fructose preferentially refills liver glycogen. And I have a little thought around this. I, I don't really have any literature to support this, but to the degree we get a little bit of an adrenal-driven um, hepatic or liver uh, glucose release from stored glycogen, I think that that indicates a little bit of a stress on the, on the system. And I think that consuming a little bit of fru fructose-glucose combo um, helps mitigate that. So it might blunt some of that kind of catabolic signaling. You need some of that. Like we need yeah. some of that signaling to occur. But, uh, you know, if somebody, the funny thing is I, I saw all these folks that they were like, say, say doing CrossFit six days a week, and then they would do hot yoga for a cool down and, and they ate five grams of carbs a month. Yeah. And they're like, I haven't had a libido in a year and my hair is falling out. And it's like, well, no wonder, man, like you're, cooking it on the training side. You're not supplying adequate nutrition on the, the, the food side. So I, I think that finding ways of, um, again, enhancing that training stimulus, but mitigating kind of the downside effects of like that, that, uh, catabolic response, that cortisol release that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun dance figuring out the best. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like and it changes, you know, yeah. it changes based off your goals and, and everything, but I, I still generally, so like when I go to jujitsu, I do try to do some, some fasted roles because yeah. it slows me down. It makes me be more conservative with my energy and it helps, but that's largely because I'm trying to take as much of my attributes out as possible and rely on, on technique. Like if I build a game around technique, that'll be with me until I, I die. Like, but if it, if it's all based around my speed or my explosiveness, I'm almost 50. And although I'm in pretty good shape for my age, like there's a downward slope that, that, that like I'm on it. And, and unless uh, science figures out something to be able to press a reset button, like that's what I've got to work with. So that's a situation where I'm not looking to optimize physical performance as much as technical performance. And so I actually kind of govern myself or hamstring myself a little bit on the physical capacity side. So I have to rely on technique. Well, dude, let's, let's be honest. If, if we look like you when we're 50, like, fuck, hopefully be, people look far better than I am. Dude, you, 50, you're so good hopefully shape, they have man. more, more, more hair than I do. So you're in good shape, man. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's awesome. So let's, let's talk about, this is something I really, I really want to hone in on. And, you know, there's a lot of vegans that listen, there's vegetarians, there's meat eaters, there's all this stuff. And there's a lot of people for, you know, moral reasons, don't eat meat, whatever it may be. You know, I'm not here to say what's right or wrong. You got to do what's best for you. Same thing, right? But um, can you walk us through what is the right 
how, what is the right way to eat meat for your body and the environment? What is the wrong way for your body and the environment? And then let's talk about sacred, sacred cow and on how that all ties into that as well. Yeah, man, that is, um, I've been doing a lot of these interviews because I have a new book and, and film coming out called Sacred Cow. And honestly, that was possibly the best question or the best couched question around this I've really had. So ha- Thanks, ha- hat- hats off to you on that. Um, it's a great question. I'm going to have a shit answer because your yeah. question is actually so good. Um, I don't know that there is a singular right way in this story. Um, I think... Something that I've observed is that people, uh, I've really focused on people who are sick, like particularly like autoimmune uh, GI related problems. That's what I had to deal with. Like it's, it's cool to get people abs. It's cool to get them in their skinny jeans. Like that's awesome. But when somebody thinks that they're going to die and then they're like, dude, I, I think you saved my life. And really it's them. But, you know, I mean, it's the information that they're, they're tinkering with like, that's really gratifying. Like that'll, that'll mist you up a little bit when you, you have somebody who's like, I'm a father of four kids. And like, I thought I was going to die. And now I think I'm going to be here to, to see grandkids. Like that's awesome. But what I notice is people will recover their health and then they start kind of, it's almost like the, the thing, like if you're on an airplane and they, they say, if the cabin depressurizes, put on your own mask first before helping someone else. It's similar to that. Like people get their own shit squared away, but then they, stand up and they look around, they're like, okay, what else do I do? And it's oftentimes they start thinking about some of these like moral ethics, environmental topics. And I think rightfully so, like in that kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, once you deal with the the basic necessities of survival, you start looking for kind of deeper meaning in your life. And I think that this is a, a very natural, organic place for people to go. And in this, this story, we, we have these interesting juxtapositions of what is it that's best for me as a human being to eat? And we can kind of build a case around that. And clearly this is a super contentious topic. There's all this data that paints like a vegan diet in a very favorable light. Um, You know, I feel like there's some very compelling data anthropologically and study wise, it paints an animal inclusive diet as being pretty critical. Just looking at nutrient deficiencies it's remarkably difficult to eat a a hundred percent vegan diet without supplementation and and make that work. B twelve, iron, zinc, uh, long chain fats are are really challenging to obtain. They can be obtained, but it's it's it, it's a challenge. And particularly if you want to put on the hat of I'm going to do this a hundred percent whole food, it's arguably impossible. And so it it's interesting that for children and infants really nowhere in the world signs off on this notion that it's safe for, for these kids to eat a hundred percent vegan diet because the, the nutrient deficiency story is so critical in that first thousand days of life. And this really circles back to, um, your, your question, what's the best, you know, meat for an individual for a family living on the margins for, a uh, you know, some, uh, you know, poor, uh, socially marginalized, trying to improve their, their situation in life. One of the greatest determinants of whether or not their children will succeed or fail is the diet that they eat. And there, there's been a limited number of studies around this, but they've looked at, at children in developing countries 
And uh, one group of kids would get a meat supplement, another a dairy supplement, another just excess calories. And the kids that received a meat supplement performed better cognitively, physically, and academically. And I mean, it was by a remarkable spread. So what's the right meat for a family living at the margins to eat? Do they have to eat 100% grass-fed, massaged by the Dalai Lama? You know, that's that's ridiculous. Like we were, particularly living in in the West, we have an industrial food system that ironically makes grain-finished meat somehow cheaper than grass-fed meat, even though nowhere else in the planet is that real. Like you've been to Australia. If you want to eat a grass-finished steak, it's like 30 to 40% more expensive than a, yeah. a, 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 a grain-finished steak is more expensive than a grass-finished steak because it takes more energy and costs more money. Like it, it, the only reason in, in the United States and to some degree Canada that we get away with that is these weird uh, food subsidies that we have and, and things like that. So, you know, what is the right ethical meat for someone to eat it is very situationally dependent. I do think that people that have the means to buy locally produced, ethically sourced, regeneratively raised meat, we should be doing that so that we subsidize that process until that displaces the industrial food system. And it will at some point, like it's got the power to do that. But we've got to have the, the ability to both be willing for the people who have the resources to support that system, support it, but then at the same time, not vilify both the process and the, the people who are dependent on this other part of the, the food system. You know, like we've, we've got to grow in a, a direction so that everybody's needs can be addressed. And this is one of the ironic things, like we, we get a decent amount of hate mail not just from the vegan camp, but from the regenerative ag camp, because these folks are so idealistic about this. They're kind of like, well, if you can't eat grass fed meat, you should just eat beans and rice. And it's like, okay, that's great to say. How does that work in practice? How does that affect this, this low income family that they're, again, their children, their health, their, uh, uh, cognitive development, um, academics are dramatically influenced by the quality of their diet. Is it ethical to suggest that, you know, it's, it's all or nothing for those people. And this is kind of the balancing act that we have to, to, in my opinion, um, really put some effort into to dealing with, because on the one hand, we do want to improve the food system. We want to decentralize it. We want to turn it into a, a regenerative system, but at the same time, we can't make perfection such a lofty goal that the good enough stuff is able to help the people that really need help. And the, the irony is, I think some well-intentioned people, but, but, but poorly informed, there are things being rolled out like meatless Mondays, particularly in like the, the larger city school systems. New York yeah. is a pretty good example. And people will say, well, what's the big deal if a kid doesn't get some meat on, on one day of the week or, or whatever? And the problem there is that the, in like New York specifically, 70% of the kids that attend the New York public school system are low income. 10% of them are homeless. And that meal that they get from school may be the only meal they get all day. Mm. And these kids are so on the margin already. And there's just kind of, there is just no amount of beans or rice or hummus or what have you that's going to provide the nutrient density that, that a, a, a 
a hamburger is going to provide like a three ounces of, of beef ends up providing the same amount of protein as, um, gosh, the beans and rice equivalent. I'm, I'm blanking now, but the, the calorie difference, and this gets into the overeating thing, but the calories in that piece of meat is like 270 calories. The beans and rice are nearly 800 calories, but that, but there's not the vitamins, there's not the minerals and not the long chain fatty acids. None of that is there. And those things are critical for, for growing kids. So yeah, you see where you had a very good answer, but it's a very long convoluted, um, or, or good question, but it's a long convoluted answer to try to unpack that. Like what is the ethical considerations for any given individual? And again, like we're, we're seeing policy shifts at like the world health organization level suggesting that everybody should adopt a vegan diet and, and, uh, that it's appropriate for all stages of the life cycle. And there's some real good data to suggest that, that there's going to be some catastrophic problems with that. And people make these as some uh, suggestions thinking that it's going to improve health. And we have some really good data that, that says counter to that. And we really unpack that in the book. And it's interesting, even the environmental topics like the greenhouse gas emissions, yeah. If we removed all cattle from the U.S. food system, it would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by like 2.8% total. Like it's, it's a rounding error. But it's interesting that more vegan-centric folks will quote these numbers that, um, that uh, greenhouse gas emissions from livestock are larger than the totality of the transportation industry. And it, it's just not true. There was a study that has been retracted and what they they did in that example is they, they looked at this full life cycle analysis for animal husbandry and life cycle analysis looks at every single input, every single output and, and uh, puts that all together, counts up the energy needs. And it also considers the greenhouse gas emissions. When they looked at the transportation sector, the only thing they looked at is what was coming out of the tailpipe or, or out of the airplane engine it ignored all the energy that was necessary to build the car, to build the roads, to build the airplane, to deal with the infrastructure within all that stuff. And when you actually account for the full life cycle analysis of the whole transportation sector, it is absolutely enormous and, and just dwarfs the animal husbandry side. And the interesting thing there also is that the, the greenhouse gases that come from living systems need to be treated very differently. Um, right now we're in this kind of hysteric moment where any methane, any carbon dioxide release is seen as a bad thing. You and I are releasing carbon dioxide right now because we're alive. Everything that's alive does, does that. So you can consider anything that's living to be a greenhouse gas emitter, which actually should be regarded as a good thing because it means that it's a, it, it's alive, but the, the danger that we get into on this stuff, um, it's been recently discovered that shellfish re release enormous amounts of methane. Um, termites release enormous amounts of methane. Rice patties release enormous amounts of methane. The problem that's getting missed in all this is we're, we're lumping all greenhouse gases is the same, but when it's part of a, a life cycle, when it's part of a biogenic process, like as an example, um, sunlight falls on the earth, it grows grass, ruminants eat that grass, 
It turns it into food that other critters can eat. It also creates uh, methane, which gets belched out into the environment. That methane, though, has about a 10-year life cycle before it gets converted into carbon dioxide and water. And then that carbon dioxide plugs back into the photosynthetic process. But what's another deeper layer to that is a well-managed or, or a biodynamic grassland sequesters more carbon than it releases. It takes carbon from the atmosphere, puts it underground in the root systems. And we understand pretty clearly that these regenerative practices actually pull more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than what they release. But yet we are demonizing the ability to use this tool. And so this, again, this, uh, you know, when we, when we put together the book, my co-author and I, Diana Rogers, um, we tackle nutrition first, then the environment and then ethics. But the reality is that they're all very intimately intertwined. And if you make the case, and and again, I I could be wrong. I could be totally full of shit. This stuff needs to be vetted out and, and checked and everything. But if our supposition is true that it's very difficult to feed humans adequately with no animal products, then that changes the ethical story a lot. It's like, you know, that really changes the ethics uh, uh, significantly. If it's true that properly raised grazing animals may be our best tool in fighting climate change, that changes the ethical discussion a lot. And again, I, w- I don't want folks to believe me that that I, I got all this stuff right. I would love for them to look at the same science and unpack it and all that stuff. But if we get these two things that are really making the case for an animal-inclusive food system, but but done in a way that actually regenerates the land versus degrades it, then we circle back around and we look at how many animals and insects and ecosystems are destroyed or killed or damaged from conventional row crop agriculture versus regenerative practices. And people have done these analyses and, you know, raising animals on grass, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, that is the most sustainable and also the least harm that it causes the least amount of death relative to the industrial row crop food system because people kind of forget that there's all these insects and invertebrates and snakes and amphibians that not only do their ecosystems just go away when we, when we turn it into like a, a, a giant field of soybeans, they get killed serially each time we harvest, each time we spray chemicals on it when the, 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 um, you know, the topsoil blows away due to erosion. And it's a, it's a pretty complex process to unpack. Like we've been jibby jabbering for, for a little bit here, but um, those are just some of the things that I would throw out for folks to consider like that, that ethics story or question is a really well-placed question, but we can't answer it in this like knee jerk response or, or in a very simplistic way, which I, I've got to say, I, I would hold the, the more vegan centric folks feet to the fire. They have these great things. It's almost like throwing a, a hand grenade over a fence. It's like meat causes cancer, meat destroys the environment, you know, and it sounds compelling and there seems to be some data associated with it. But the flip side of that is for me to properly unpack that stuff is like a mini PhD dissertation to really do it justice. And depending on where the person is on, on kind of like their religious convictions around the stuff, I may never reach them. You know, there are more people 
now than literally ever in history that believe in a flat earth. You know? And so there's just some things that you're, you're not going to win not that flat? fight. <laughs> Eddie Bravo said it is, man. So yeah. it, it must be. So, or he's aliens. I forget yeah. if he's flat earth or aliens or both, but, but it's a lot. And, it, and, you know, again, I, I appreciate that people are asking these, these questions. Like these are really important, good questions to ask. But when Diana and I sat down to write this book, we, we outlined a ton of assumptions and then we tried to disprove these assumptions. And this is kind of an interesting one. And it's another one that gets us in trouble with the, the kind of meat elitist crowd. But people will say that pastured meat is significantly healthier nutritionally than grain finished meat. And it's not really to the best research that we've got. I mean, it's barely different. There's a little bit more omega threes, but if we're really going to, going to die on the hill of omega threes, a three ounce piece of salmon has more omega three fats than eight pounds of pastured meat. And, and I mean, we looked at it literally every scrap of information we tortured the data trying to spin it because we knew that this was going to be a shit show for us. Like we knew that people were going to be angry about this because they, there's all this information kind of to the contrary of this. Now, pastured dairy is much more healthy, much more nutritious. Uh, pastured eggs are much more nutritious. Wild caught fish is much more nutritious. It is more ethical to, to uh, uh, you know, pasture meat. It is more environmentally sound to pasture meat. But nutrition, vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, essential amino acids, there's almost no difference. And that has been a major bone of contention. Like the regenerative ag people hate us for that. But we hired an independent researcher, a guy with a PhD who has a, a background in biochemistry and soil sciences, we're like, hey, we want you to do a, a soup to nuts analysis of the difference between grass-fed meat and pastured meat. Go. We gave him nothing else. We wanted him to 100% wow. do it on his own. And he arrived at exactly what we did, which either means both of us are idiots or there's just not that, that mega difference there. But again, I, I will emphasize like the ethics are in, in favor of regenerative meat. The environmental footprint is in favor of regenerative meat. But the reality, what struck me, I was trying to make sense of this and it just struck me. It was like, oh, meat is nutritious, mm. period, <laughs> you know? And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of stuff to unpack, but that, that's how, so, so one of the lines that we had in the book was um, pastured meat is significantly more nutritious than grain fed meat. And we were wrong about that. Like there were several assumptions that we made when we really looked at the data. It's like, no, that's not accurate. Like that is not the case. And we had to, we had to either lie or, and I, as much as it would have played better for our story to lie about the, the pastured versus grass fed uh, or grain finished meat deal. Had we lied about that, this would have been an easy thing for somebody to get in, look at the same literature that we did and then be like, that is completely inaccurate. And if those guys are wrong about this easy of a thing, if they outright lied about that, how can we believe anything else that they have to say? You know, like uh, yeah. that. Yeah. So we, we literally, we had a 35 page outline for the book. Like the outline alone was 35 pages and we had like bullet point after bullet point of here's the assumption. 
what does the data really say around this? Uh, so again, I'm not saying that we got it all right, but I, I, I would challenge anybody, like if you don't think it's right, like show me your data, show me, show me your, how you arrived at a different conclusion, and then we'll update the book if you, if you convince me to the contrary of that. But we spent four years on this thing trying to get it right. Wow. Yeah. Dude, there's no better person than I would want to hear that from. Like then you, that is, that is so fucking valuable. What you just said there, like, thank you. Like that is okay. You know, and what I started eating grass fed beef and again, like 2012. And that was what I was meant to believe was better, way superior. But yeah, of mm -hmm. course, of course it's better for the environment. It's better to have grass fed beef if you can afford it yep. essentially. Right. Yeah. You know, and for the environment. And that's just, that blows my mind that. Oh, oh and, and before yeah. I get, there is a case to be made that yeah. uh, conventional meat can bioaccumulate things like atrazine. Um, if a grain fed meat, because they're eating grains, that grain can get infected with mold and you can get a remarkable uh, aflatoxin build up and it, it has made people sick or killed them with, oh, and wow. this usually happens in, in other countries, but this is one of the hazards of grain feeding meat. So um, bioaccumulation is a thing, but I treat that separately from nutrition. Nutrition is like gotcha. the vitamins, minerals. Yeah. But so there is that, that is another thing yeah. there that, um, does not occur in grass fed meat. Yeah. That's really interesting, man. It's so good to know. And well, another thing is, is this whole, when that game changers bullshit came out, it just, man, I got so angry. I couldn't even, and it's just so misleading to people because you talked about, you know, one piece of meat or what do they say about the comparison and protein? It's like this little shit thing gives you the same as meat or whatever it was. Yeah. It's like, are you, and it, are you kidding me? It is me? just a lie. Usually it's like a half a cup of broccoli has more protein than yeah. a pound of steak or something like that. Some, some crazy deal. And I mean, it's just literally wrong. Yeah. You just go to the USDA nutrient database and it's just wrong it, it, from an absolute magnitude perspective and also just the reality that uh, plant-based proteins are really hard for humans to to access ruminants do a great job cows are great at upcycling those nutrients but they have four stomachs like they uh they really go to go to town on this stuff yeah 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 that's that's super important too because okay for all the vegans out there it's good to know like if you're a vegan you know like rich roll he can thrive on it some people can thrive so let's, let's, let's maybe walk us through the right way to eat as a vegan, if that's something that you really sure. feel called to do. And maybe can you point out some of the things that maybe they don't, well, you, you kind of covered it already that are actually hurting the environment. Like, I mean, stuff like this beyond meat bullshit and, and that kind of stuff. Maybe walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. You, you know, really quickly to, to, uh, back some of this stuff up. So we called the book Sacred Cow because so much of the emphasis has been on cattle. Right. Um, and, and we do make the case that depending on where you are in the world, sheep or goats or camels or guinea pigs might be a, a better option. But just this idea of upcycling grasslands into nutrient-dense food is, is really important. Um, a lot of the stuff that is leveled at the, the animal husbandry industry, like um, we're stealing food from humans and feeding it to animals and it's inefficient, that doesn't really happen that much with cattle. Uh, even conventionally raised cattle spend 70% of their lives on grass. The bulk of what they get 
after that is actually the leftovers from the ethanol industry. So you make beer, you make ethanol for fuel, and then the, the leftover plant material is, is fed to these animals. But nobody is picketing the, the, the booze producers, but that's actually where the bulk of that goes hmm. with cows. With chicken and pork, they are 100% dependent on grain and soybean inputs. So if there was a case to be made both on the ethical side, because the, the confinement with um, pork and chicken is pretty horrific, uh, uh, with the food that is fed to them, there's a, a case to be made there. But getting back to your, your original question around like, you know, how could a, a vegan tackle this stuff? Um, I know a lot of people wouldn't go for this, but just as a, a thought experiment, if we looked at the, the nutrient deficiencies that we typically see within a, a vegan diet, zinc, iron, long chain, omega-3 fats, shellfish would fill this void amazingly well if people were willing to eat these bivalve shellfish. Some people in the vegan scene are okay with that. They're like, they don't have a central nervous system. Like, it, you know, there's no, there's no ability for them to experience pain. Like they're, they're effectively a, a plant that is in the animal kingdom. If you, if you want to kind of, kind of make it like that, although plants respond to predation too. So yeah. that's not a, you know, that's a whole, whole other deal, but that would really effectively, um, twice a week, you know, like having, having a couple ounces of, of uh, uh, oysters or something like that could really plug the gaps of, of the, the overt nutrient deficiencies. You're still in kind of an upward battle with regards to getting adequate protein. Um, I know that there are folks in kind of the vegan scene that will say that men and women only need like 40 or 50 grams of protein yeah. a day. Yeah. That is the, the RDI where, um, if you go below that, then overt protein malnutrition happens. So eating at that level, you are just literally skating the edge of protein malnutrition. Um, when we look at aging populations, they seem to do better and better with the more protein that they consume. So uh, we make the case in the book, and this is, uh, Diana has been researching this protein topic for a good five years, and um, we double or triple the RDI for folks. And so depending on how far down the rabbit hole folks want to go with that, like they may need to do like rice protein supplements or pea protein supplements or whatnot. And that's all fine. But when we start talking about sustainability, concentrating rice into rice protein is a non-sustainable proposition. Mm -hmm. Like it is massively energy intensive. It releases huge amounts of greenhouse gas it is more efficient to raise grass fed beef in that regard. And like, I'll, I'll do a thousand dollar, $10,000 bet, whatever people want to do. Show me how, like the life cycle analysis on plant-based proteins. When you look at all the energy inputs, the greenhouse gas emissions, it is less efficient than grass fed beef and grass fed beef restores grasslands and it captures water and it sequesters carbon. Like there's all these benefits there, but, um, Okay, so protein, general nutrient stuff, uh, zinc, B vitamins, uh, iron, and long chain uh, uh, essential fats. You can supplement with, uh, say, algae-derived uh, long chain fats, the DHA. Again, very energy intensive. You have to harvest kelp. You have to process it. It's chemically extracted. It gets encapsulated. It's not a free goddamn lunch. You I was know? just going to say, so, there's no such thing. It's just not a free lunch. So... And again, this is, this is where like, I would encourage folks that are vegan, like 
don't believe me out of hand, but just for like a high school debate team, just put on the hat that what I'm saying is accurate for a minute, just, mm-hmm. just as an experiment, you know? And if it's so energy intensive to get, let's assume that the protein needs are in fact greater than what, what most vegan folks really think are really being told. Let's say that their B vitamin needs are greater, the zinc, all this stuff. It's very difficult to, to, um, to access all this stuff uh, from a purely uh, plant-based system. What does that do to the ethical story? And let's expand that out and just say, I'm not really advocating for expansion of the industrial food system. I'm suggesting that we should have millions of small family farms all over the world decentralizing our food. The direction that we've been going over the last 50 years, we now have nine companies that control 95% of all of the food that humanity eats. It, it, and so, and we're talking about like equality and privilege and different things like that. We're in a position where multinational companies are, are in this pipeline to produce food that is intellectual property. It's, it's basically food as software. This is yeah. like the impossible burger and, and all that type of stuff. Their stated goal is to own the intellectual property of our food system. And I'm thinking through like, you know, privilege and access and minorities. Who wins in that? Do poor people win? Do minorities win when literally no one can afford to become a farmer or a rancher and they, they can't enter this mm-hmm. scene? Or is a system that is broken up and decentralized? And the interesting thing is starting a, a, an industrial row crop centric food operation it requires tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to just start. Whereas like a, 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 a grass fed regenerative operation, you could start it on a couple of thousand dollars. Like you, you can lease land. You don't even have to buy the land outright. You can lease the animals. Like, you know, like the startup costs could be really minimal. And we're trying to put together some, uh, some, uh, uh, donation-based and investment-based opportunities where people of color, different, you know, women can enter this scene and be plugged into these opportunities to start raising food, both for themselves and their community and, and, you know, just kind of gain the power that, that, that could provide them. So I know I'm kind of bouncing around in a, a lot of different directions, but again, when people talk about ethics, they do it at a superficial level that is almost kind of laughable when you really start peeling back the layers and more and more layers in uh, uh, different areas around the world. There are tens of millions of women that cannot own title to land. Legally, they cannot own land, but they can own livestock. And this is the singular way that they have to feed their families, to provide economic support. It's their social status. And now this largely white, wealthy, vegan-centric Western world is saying to these people that you raising your goats in sub-Saharan Africa is going to destroy the planet due to climate change. And that is like the most profound egotism and privilege. And the interesting thing, the places that were actually getting pushback about like the Eat Land Set recommendations that are both uh, nutritionally and environmentally based is coming from the developing world. Because these people are looking at the healthcare crisis they're facing from our exported junk food. And then they're facing the prospect of 
destroying their local food systems so that they could be 100% dependent on our industrial row crop food system. And some of these people, thank God, are like, no, we don't want any part of that. You're not going to destroy our, our traditional life ways. You're not going to destroy our traditional cultures. And occasionally people will say, well, if you're Inuit or Maasai or whatever, then yeah, you can keep doing what you're doing. It's like, okay, I guess that's okay. But if you are an eighth generation white farmer in Ottawa, are, you're, you're not allowed to continue doing animal husbandry because you're white, but it's okay. It, like this is where like people need to really fucking think this stuff through. And, and I get that there's a ton of good intention but the, the path to hell is oftentimes paved on, on good intention, you know? And so some of the things that are being rolled out is um, it one, it, there's, there was a, a piece done by Forbes that, that said the vegans are like the best friends of the industrial food system because they're not selling pearled barley and, and, you know, uh, uh, puffed rice. It's like these highly processed foods. There was just some recall of a, a food that's being made out of wood chips. Yeah. I saw and like they're trying Sean to ferment Baker the wood that. chips and, and, yeah. uh, and it's like, really? <laughs> like, this is how, like, what do you need to put into a system to turn wood chips into human food? Yeah. You know, it's like, what do you do to that stuff versus like, let's have a vibrant ecosystem and, and, you know, grow, grow the food that we can and people oftentimes ask, you know, can you scale this stuff? The, the kind of three points to that. In the United States and elsewhere, there's huge tracts of land that are offline from animal husbandry inclusion. Like they basically, uh, big blocks of land are not allowed to have grazing animals on it. And it's perceived to be this thing to benefit the land, but it actually damages the land. Um, we have examples of uh, desertified areas like the Chihuahuan Desert. Uh, Diana in the film interviews a guy that has restored a million acres of the Chihuahuan Desert to grassland. And people who have lived there for multiple generations didn't even know that grass could grow there. Wow. But using these regenerative practices, and one of the, the things that gets missed in this story is that historically in these grasslands, we had these huge groups of grazing animals that bunched together and moved as a mass because they always had predators at their periphery. And so they had to stay together to, to um, protect one another. And when we removed all the predators, the animals could just kind of spread out, eat a little bit of this, eat a little bit of that. And that led to overgrazing. Like what these animals do in a mob grazing format is they go through an area and eat everything and then they're gone. But what they do is they peep, poop and they pee and they, they break up the soil and dung beetles come in and, and start dealing with the, the cow patties and everything. And then birds come in and then other animals come in to predate the birds. And then when the animals come back, when the, the grazing animals come back, the grassland is even better. And below the ground, it has been retaining more water, sequestering carbon. This is again, this like uh. virtuous cycle of trying to re-replicate what nature has been doing since the beginning of time on earth. But I, I've got to say like, the, the, I guess one of my like throw down the gauntlet pieces is how does a vegan centric row crop model look more like ecology than what I'm suggesting here? How does it look more like the natural world than what I'm suggesting here? And people will say things like, well, we can rewild and put things back to, 
to nature. There's some, some mega problems with that, which we we unpack in the book. But the, when I've when I've been in these discussions with folks and we get to this point, like oftentimes there's a little bit of a a light that goes on. They're like, oh, we might actually need animals in our system to be able to make this thing work. And it's like, yeah, and like you don't necessarily need to eat them. But if you're going to grow food in a regenerative process, those animals have to be part of this cycle. And even then, it begs this question, what are you going to do with the animals? Do you just let them get old and die? Um, Do you let them breed as much as they want because there's no predator pressure on them? So then you have to do some amount of population control it gets really, really interesting. And this has, uh, we tell the story of a couple of different folks that were vegan, decided that they wanted to start raising food, figured out that a only vegan input, you know, like fruit and vegetable system was not going to work. Like it just ends up failing. So they needed animals for the, for the fertilizer and all the other types of things that were going on. And then when they started getting these animals, they were, uh, you know, they would let a cow get really old like, what do we do now? Do we just wait for it to die in the field? You know, it's sick. It maybe has a hurt leg. Do you euthanize it? And then when they would talk about euthanizing it, the other vegans in their community would completely descend on them. But these these were the people dealing with it. They have this animal that they love, that they respect. It's near the end of its life. What are you going to do? And so this is the thing. You can't escape the reality of life and death. And this is largely the shell game that these people are doing. They're trying to act like they don't need to acknowledge that we're all going to live, we're all going to die, and that we're all part of this system. I think that there's some good intention behind it that we want to minimize suffering. And that is absolutely a, a laudable goal. But the irony is that the process that they're putting forward does not mitigate suffering. It enhances it and expands it. And this is kind of the ironic feature. And I, again, for the folks that are vegans, if they're still listening, I would just, if you really take this stuff seriously, at least put on the hat that this could be possible because what if you go 10 or 20 more years beating this drum and then somewhere down the road, more of this information makes it into your awareness and you're like, oh, I wasted 20 years. And I don't know, again, maybe I'm wrong on all this stuff, but I don't think that people even... I'm able to discuss the vegan topic and kind of argue both sides of this story because I'm well-versed on, on yeah. both of them. I, I don't find folks particularly well-versed. They know their vegan gig and yeah. that's it. Like they, they don't understand regenerative ag at all. They don't understand both the benefits and the, the limitations of it. Um, they're really poorly informed. And I would just say that if you are approaching this from an ethical perspective, it really is you know, beholden to you to, to go out and educate yourself as best as you can on this so that you get this story right. Mm. Man, that was, it's so true, you know, and there's, there's so much there that I, I think it's just important to be able to look at both sides, you know, like if you have one belief in one way, like it's, it's healthy to look at the other side. Like, why do they say that? You know, like why, why it's, I, I get interested in that. You know, even the vegans, I've looked at it. I'm like, huh, okay. They really believe that. All right. And it's interesting to kind of learn about that. Right. But that's what you do is you, you look at both and you provide which one's better all around. I mean, that's, but most people are just so tied up to their idea and it's just, they refuse to think about anything and they treat everything just the same. 
you know, meat is meat, meat is bad, and they're not worth, they're not even thinking about looking into it further at all. Right. And it's just such a dangerous thing because, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't have to be so black and white about everything all the time, right? Yeah. And, you know, it, my life would be made much easier if, yeah. like, the, if the vegan shtick was, like, the best thing for health, the best thing yeah. for the environment. Like, even if it had turned out that it was like, well, it's good for health, it's good for the environment, but the ethics are, are still questionable, then we would have said that or, you know, some combination of these things. But the irony is that trying to emulate the way that the world was before humanity was here, plants, animals, functioning ecosystems, life, death, um, that ends up making health the best. It ends up making economics the best. It ends up making the ecology the best. And interestingly, it produces the least harm, like it produces the least damage and least least suffering at the end of the day, which is, I, I think, really the thing that folks um, kind of zero in on. And again, nobody's advocating for these kind of broken um, industrial food models around animal husbandry. And it, it is, this is another area that I'm going to get a, a ton of hate from is, is um, the, the pork and poultry scene needs some revisiting, you know, like it needs some serious revisiting. Big time. Historically, those were not central features of anybody's food system. They were background stories to it. The, mm -hmm. the pigs oftentimes playing a role in nutrient upcycling of, of foods that couldn't be eaten by humans or maybe it had gone bad or something like that. And chickens always were just kind of in the background. Uh, before the 1940s, chicken was like the Sunday dinner that you had every once in a while because it was rare. It wasn't a staple. The staple was lamb and beef and goat and camel, you know, depending on where you were, because most of the earth's landmass is grassland. And most of that grassland is amenable for doing nothing but raising grazing animals. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. <laughs> now you just go and you buy these chickens everywhere and everyone's eating these big whole chickens. It's, yeah. It's, I feel we, like we should, shit after I eat those, man. Honestly. Uh, it's funny. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm neurotic or not, but like I don't feel that good on pork anymore and I don't feel yeah, that neither. good on chicken anymore. Me neither, either. man. It's kind of weird. Yeah. 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 It's it's bizarre. I like I'll I'll be eating completely clean, everything, then I'll go have a chicken and I'll feel like shit after, man. But then I'll have a steak. I feel great. I feel alive. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's it's interesting. Same with pork. I don't even yeah, I don't really even like eating bacon and stuff. It gives me a weird some sort of weird feeling. I don't know. We, we used to do a lot of pork ribs and the kids yeah. still like pork ribs, but um, I've shifted to uh, beef and lamb. When we do a, a rib deal, I do beef and lamb for my wife and I, and then the kids do the, uh, the pork ribs. And the main deal I, I think is that the, the beef ribs are tougher than the, the mm. pork ribs. And the, the kids are like, these taste really good, but they, they, it's a lot of work to, to get the meat off the bone for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, dude, where can we, where's the best place to find you? Because I want to make sure everybody goes and checks out all your work, gets your book, checks out your podcast, Health Rebellion Radio. Where Thank is you. Yeah. I, I, to, to get more information around Sacred Cow, the main website is sacredcow.info. And again, the book release July 14th. The film should be coming out late August, early September, maybe even a little bit later than that, but we should start start seeing that somewhere around then. 
And we have so much information there for free for folks if they want to check that out. Um, we're curating all the podcasts we've, we've been on there. Yours will, will go up in that spot. And then beyond that, um, the only social media I'm doing at all is over at Instagram, at DosRobWolf. And at some point, I'm going to pull the plug on that one too. Like I am just over social media uh, across the board. And then uh, spending the bulk of my time at the Healthy Rebellion, join dot the Healthy Rebellion. This is a membership uh, community that the, the goal is to liberate a million people from the sick care system. Awesome, man. Your podcast cool. with your wife is amazing. You guys do Thank a you. great job, man. Like, Thank you. Highly recommend you guys follow him on Instagram. You know, hopefully the censorship gets, goes down a little bit. It's just out of control. I know that you've had an issue with that. And it's just, yeah, that's a whole other I've just learned to stay within some very tight lane lines. It, yeah. But it's, uh, it's very frustrating because, I mean, as, as we saw in this conversation, and again, I can't emphasize enough, maybe I'm full of shit about all of this stuff. Maybe I'm wrong about all of it. But, man, we covered everything from economics to ecology to the environment, some social political stuff, some, you know, privilege and access stuff. And you can't talk about anything hardly without bringing some of that into the mix, you know? Yeah. And again, maybe people have goofy ideas on it or maybe they don't, but like if we want a bunch of dummies running our world, then we have superficial conversations and just echo chambers and that's it, you know? And, or we need the ability to, to respectfully debate and, and interact and, and have uh, uh, disagreements or we're really, we're going to see things go backwards. And, and I, I know that a lot of people just are, are really cranky and angry right now. And like even social media itself, the <laughs> algorithms pit us against one another, you know, yeah. and which is part of the reason why I'm, I'm largely opting out of that stuff. I may end up just being a farmer myself and just kind of abandoning this, this whole thing, but I, I really still enjoy doing it a lot. But again, I know I'm rambling, but, um, I would just point out to people that, um, we have to be able to have conversations and you don't have to agree with everybody. They don't have to agree with you, but like just some modicum of respect and decorum and like, Hey, I hear what you're saying. I don't necessarily agree. And then you do you I'll do me, but it's turned into this thing where like, you're going to agree with me or I'm going to rally a mob to go dox you. And, and, uh, and the, the crazy thing with that, people don't realize the mob always comes for you too. Nobody ends up being immune from the mob. And you may think that you are. You may think that you virtue signaled hard enough that you are above it all, but there will be some marginalized group that will come for your head at some point too. And that's really the danger of heading down this, this road that we're, we seem to be on a fast track on. Yeah, I mean, if you want to highlight other people's mistakes and cancel you know, cancel people from saying something that you don't agree with. It's going to come back and bite you in the ass later. Like, yeah. and, and, like and just re really quick, I'll, I'll throw this out here. It struck me the other day. Where is forgiveness in this story? Yeah. Like we're in a, a society where literally, so we're all probably going to live somewhere around like 80 to 90 years, something like that. We get no mistakes in that time. Mm -hmm. We cannot fuck up once without suffering the wrath of the whole world from social media. And it, it's interesting, the, the, um, the sentiment right now is that, particularly if, if you disagree with someone, 
that other person, like we're dehumanizing them, which is what, what people do when they, they do wars. Yeah. You know, it's what you do about like, you know, you look at anybody's military propaganda, like you make the other side into subhuman savages, and then it's reasonable to attack them. And one of the first things that you take away is the ability to forgive. And we're, we're literally in the spot where like forgiveness or gratitude for just being alive is kind of not allowed. All that you're allowed is penance and, and, you know, feeling bad for whatever your, your situation is. And, uh, it's super dangerous. People have danced that dance in the past and we have, we have, you know, things like Auschwitz and, and whatnot to, um, to mark, uh, times like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Crazy times, man. I, I just thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dude. Hopefully you don't regret having me on Dude, here. So. You're, this is, this is, this is one of the best conversations I think this show has ever had as far as like health and everything and talking about like, man, I'm, I'm just so grateful for this conversation and so many people, I really wanted to get this one right. You know, I was like, fuck, I want to make sure like <laughs> did all the things, man. And I, I'm happy to say that because you know, there's, there's such important things that need to be discussed and there's certain people that know how to, to articulate that. And I'm definitely not one of them, but you are. So you, you asked the question that nobody else has asked yet. And I've been on a lot of these shows. So hats off to you, man. You, uh, uh, setting the stage for somebody to be, this is a good dance partner. You know, it's like you, if you set up the right steps, then your, your partner looks good. So thank you. Oh yeah. man. Thank you. Keep doing the work you're doing, man. I'm going to make sure to push everybody, get that book, go check out your podcast and yeah, man, just keep killing it. Thank you so much, brother. You too. Take care. Rob Wolf, everybody. Thanks everybody. Hope you guys got as much value out of that as I did. I had such a great conversation with, with Rob and super grateful for it. My number one takeaway from this episode was a better understanding of sustainable farming, what that actually means. I would love to hear your guys' takeaway. If you guys got value, share this with a friend. Leave us a review on Apple if you can. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. It comes out Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Much love, everybody. Catch you next time.